1776, just weeks after Continental Congress had declared America's independence. 400 British ships and tens of thousands of soldiers gathered uh, for an assault on New York City in their first step, okay, in enforcing the Americans to submit to British rule and authority. As they rested on Staten Island and as they got off the ships, they, they, they noticed and marveled at the food that the land produced. Okay, And then as they made their way into the mainland, they marveled even more as they saw the fruit orchards. And then they saw the well-ordered and well-furnished farmhouses. They were astounded. Their eyes told them what historians would later confirm. In 1776, Americans were enjoying the highest standard of living of anyone in the world. And that's what amazed them. They were enjoying this high standard of living. But the Britain people wondered, why would these people who are enjoying this kind of life, living on their own land, why would they rebel against England and her king? Why would they sacrifice, compromise what they had by rebelling against their king? As David McCullough in his wonderful book, 1776, tells us, they rebelled because they cared about something more than their standard of living. They sought to live as free men because they loved the idea of freedom more than their standard of living. And this animated and provoked their willingness to sacrifice for the cause. It animated their mission, in other words. Now, it's apparent from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cared more than about His standard of living as well. Now, you think about it. Before the Incarnation. Now, what is the Incarnation? That's Jesus Christ taking on human flesh. Before Jesus Christ, before the Son of God, took on human flesh, He was adored by the Father. He was worshipped by the angels. He was invulnerable to pain, to embarrassment, to frustration. And that's the way things were and had always been. And there was no reason these things should change. But change they did. And make no mistake, the Son of God was not caught by surprise by what His incarnation would entail. He knew from the very first what it would entail. Now the question is, why would the Son of God undergo this, all the miseries of this life? Well, as He told His disciples... The night before he was crucified, in John 15, verse 19, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And it was this love that motivated the Lord Jesus Christ to enter this life with all of its 
quarrels and insults and discord and arrogance and ungodliness and to be met, not with the worship that was his due, but with, as Hebrews 12 tells us, hostility against himself. Such was his love. Self-giving, self-sacrificing, self-abasing love. And that's what animated him. To freely and joyfully give of himself to do what needed to be done. Okay? In order to bring salvation. And there's no other motive sufficient enough to explain except for this kind of extraordinary love. It's only this kind of love that would pay the cost that the mission of God, what the Reformers called the Missio Dei, the mission of God required. Okay? Now at this point in our narrative, He's already paying a price. For hours, He's been mocked. He's been betrayed. His disciples got into a debate about who was the greatest right after he transforms the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. All right? And then he takes them into the garden to pray. They cannot pray in his most critical hour. They fall asleep on him. Okay? And then he's arrested. Peter denies him. He goes vigilante on him. Uh, The scripture says he's blasphemed by soldiers. And then he's going to go undergo six different trials. He's going to go before Annas. John 18 tells us. And then he will go before Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin will charge him with blasphemy. And blasphemy required the death penalty. But they did not have the power to carry out the death penalty. So they pass him over to Pilate who sees nothing wrong with this man, but he wants to clean his hands of him. So he passes him over. He delivers him to Herod. Herod then delivers him back to Pilate. And that's where we are in our passage. Jesus is appearing before Pilate for the second time, and Pilate still doesn't know what to do with him. Here's the dilemma for Pilate. He knows the man is righteous, but he knows the Jews want him dead. And the Jews... Were very influential people. He knew they could shipwreck his career. And so that is a real issue for Pilate. And so we see, first of all, in verse 13, Jesus suffering under Pontius Pilate again. Again, that's why it's found in the Creed. This is a very important event. The the Apostles' Creed. Jesus suffers under Pontius Pilate. Notice with me in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priest, the rulers, and the people. So you see the three groups in the nation here. The, the chief priests were the religious leadership. The rulers were the leaders and supporters of the leadership. Um, for example, the elders and the scribes. And then you have the people, which is interesting. Uh, up to this point, the people, for the most part, support Jesus. Now, through this remarkable and scandalous reversal, they want Jesus dead. It shows you there is a shallow kind of faith. There is a shallow kind of following of Jesus. And now these very people want Jesus dead. And to these three groups, uh, Pilate is going to give his verdict. Verse 14. 
And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. Uh, They were charging him before the Romans with insurrection. That he was rebelling against the government. Of course, their problem, they perceived him as being a blasphemer. Claiming to be the son of God. But they knew Rome didn't care about blasphemy. And so they told the Romans, they told Pilate that he was essentially guilty of insurrection. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty. That's a second affirmation of his guiltlessness. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Now, on this second instance where Pilate affirms Jesus' innocence, you think that he would release Jesus. Furthermore, verse 15 tells us that Herod perceived Jesus as guiltless. Verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. The problem for Pilate was that Jesus' enemies would never be satisfied with his verdict of innocence. And so Pilate, being more pragmatic than principled, okay, seeks a compromise. Do you know that most people are more pragmatic than they are principled? And what do you do when you're more pragmatic than when you're principled? You're a compromiser, and that's exactly what Pilate does. Verse 16. I will therefore punish and release him. Do you get that? He hasn't done anything, therefore I will punish him. It's quite remarkable. He hoped the crowds would be content with a less severe punishment than the cross. Okay? He hoped they would be content with a lacerated back. But this is absolutely despicable. Utterly despicable. What kind of logic is this? If Jesus is innocent, he should release him. He shouldn't punish him. That's exactly what you see. Now keep in mind, Who is Luke writing to? He is writing to Theophilus. Now, who is Theophilus? He describes him as the most excellent Theophilus, which tells us that Theophilus is very likely a Roman official. Okay? And he's writing that he would have certainty concerning the things he's been taught. Now, Theophilus is a Roman official. And here you have another Roman official that wants Jesus to be protected, but he's not willing to pay the price. Luke is encouraging Theophilus, don't be that guy. Don't be like Pilate. It may become very difficult for you. Okay? There may come a time in your vocation, in your position in the Roman government, that you're going to be tempted to compromise concerning Jesus Don't be that guy. Now you think about this. He understands something that we need to understand. That the seed of every sin is in every human heart. The seed of every sin, every temptation to sin, is in every human heart. Uh, Countless professing Christians in America want to protect Jesus. Okay, That's why we're so caught up in the political sphere. We want to protect the rights of Jesus and Jesus' people. Okay, But we're not even willing to sacrifice that His name would be known. 
Some of these very people, when was the last time they even shared their faith, shared the gospel with their neighbor? Or perhaps you want to protect Jesus, but He's not even king of your mouth. He's not even king of your language. He's not even lord of your attitude. He's not king and lord of your checkbook. That's the spirit of Pontius Pilate. Now, the Romans distinguished between three kinds of beatings. All right, There were three kinds of beatings in Rome. You had the less severe beating, and then you had the most severe beating, which was connected to crucifixion. Typically, if you had the death penalty, you would receive the most severe beating. What Pilate is offering right now is very likely the least of the, of the, of the beatings. Uh, the, the least of these beatings, the least severe beating, was typically used as a judicial warning. We're going to, we're going to give you a beating. Don't do that again. Now, ultimately what Jesus will experience is the most severe beating because Pilate is going to agree to crucify him. But here, at this moment, he is seeking a compromise. Now, why? Why is Pilate seeking to compromise? Well, he knows the Jews want Jesus dead. Uh, but he also knows that Pilate, or Jesus is innocent. And Matthew 27 is also insightful. His wife had had a dream. Pilate's wife had had a dream. And she had told Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today. Because of my dream. She'd had a dream. And so Pilate was fearful in light of that dream as well. Notice in verse 18, but they all cried out. Pilate is seeking a compromise, but they all cried out together. Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown away into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Now, you may notice here, verse 17 may be missing from your Bible. All right? The NAS does not have that verse. The ESV does not have that verse. It's not because the NAS committee and the ESV committee went liberal. All right? Keep in mind that when the Bible was translated into English, whether it was the King James Version or any other English version, English was not the original language. All right? Um, they did not distort the Bible when they translated the Bible from English to Greek and Hebrew. No, that's not what they did. It was originally Greek and Hebrew, and they translated it into English. All right? But they have since found older and more reliable manuscripts. All right? Of course, the older manuscripts are the most reliable because they're closer to the autographs. And so the NAS and the ESV recognized that verse 17 was likely placed there later. And what verse 17 originally said was, he was obligated to release one man to them at the festival. And that's what some of the older translations read. That is true, okay? Likely someone placed that in there later just for clarity because Matthew and Mark tell us that, all right? What's going on here is that it was the governor's established custom to grant a Passover amnesty, all right, to a prisoner. 
That was just a custom. It was a symbol, likely, of the Exodus. All right? They're, pa- they're, they're celebrating the Passover, and so they take one person, and they essentially redeem this person. And it was a picture of the grace, okay, of God in delivering uh, the undeserving Israelites from bondage. So Pontius Pilate hopes, based on this custom, that the people, that the leaders, will choose Jesus and release him. But they don't. They choose Barabbas. They prefer Barabbas to be released over Jesus. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection. Started in the city and for murder. I'll tell you a little bit about Barabbas. It's a Hebrew name. Bar Abba, son of the father. Okay? Bar Mitzvah. Okay? Son Bar Abba, son of the father. And there is irony here. In the providence of God, this man could have been named anything. He's named son of the father. And the irony here is that they are releasing one called the Son of the Father. Okay? And they are condemning the true Son of the Father. And let me just tell you, Barabbas was not the best of men. Matthew 27 tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. Mark chapter 15 tells us that he was a rebel. And actually... And ironically, Barabbas was guilty of the crime that Jesus was being accused of. Insurrection. What is an insurrection? It's a rebellion against a government. Barabbas was actually guilty of this. Jesus was being accused of this. Another irony in this is that these people who were accusing him, they were actually the true insurrectionists. Because they were rebelling against the true king. They were rebelling against the kingdom of God. And they're also guilty of rank hypocrisy. You think about this. They don't care about this man who not only is an insurrectionist, but also a murderer. They want Jesus dead. And they have made up charges so that he would be killed. Well, notice with me in verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify Him! Crucifixion, and we'll talk more about this next week, and the next couple of weeks, was the most absolute, harshest form of capital punishment in the history of the world. Never mind the ancient world. It likely dates back to the Persians, okay? The Persians were likely the ones who invented it. And the purpose was to execute a criminal in such a horrid and violent way that it would scare everyone, okay, from committing the crimes of the crucified. And crucifixion, let's just say, fit into their wicked goal. Because they wanted more than just Jesus' death. They wanted Him defamed. And keep in mind, in Deuteronomy 21, Moses writes, anyone who was hung on a tree is under God's curse. That's why they wanted Him crucified. 
Anyone who is hung on a tree, keep in mind, that command or that truth uh, was stated thousands of years before crucifixion was even invented. Isn't the Bible remarkable? Anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. They wanted Him crucified because they wanted the world to see this man is under God's curse. And oh, the irony of that. Because that's exactly what He was. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He was under God's curse. Substituting Himself for those who deserved God's curse. And notice in verse 22, third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. Again, this is the third time he affirms his guiltlessness. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. God help us when wicked voices prevail. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. You see those three expressions there. It's remarkable. They're urging their voices, demanding with loud cries, and their voices prevailing. They have a demand that they that their demand be granted. Jesus has suffered under Pontius Pilate again, but the passage ends with him suffering instead of Barabbas. Notice with me in verse twenty-five. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Yes, Pilate wanted to release Jesus. But as Mark 15 tells us, he wanted to satisfy the crowd. He knew what was right, but he wanted to satisfy the crowd. Now that is a temptation that every school age child faces, okay? You know what is right, but you want to satisfy the fickle crowd. Why? Well, because they had said, John 19, if you release this man, speaking of Jesus, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And the central task of the governor was to protect Caesar's rule. You see the dilemma? And this sealed it for him. All right? It was principle divorced from ambition. Ambition taking over principle. You know, an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ reveals what is truly in your heart. Pilate obviously lives for self, okay? He lives for power. He lives to advance his rank and his career. Self is his God. And his career was his way of serving his God. And he will not risk it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we saw in Jonah, we just finished up our study in Jonah. Whatever we treasure most is what we worship. Alright? And what we worship... Depends on what we fear most. 
What we worship depends on what we fear most. So think about it. If you fear loneliness, you worship relationships. All right? Codependent people. All right? You know codependent people? If you fear loneliness, or you'll have uh, young women who marry a, let's just say, a jacked up man because they fear growing old alone. So they marry the wrong person. If you fear loneliness, you will worship relationships. Or, if you fear or you worship acceptance and esteem, you're going to esteem and worship your appearance and your possessions. Or, if you fear insignificance, and this is big with men, you fear dying and having had an insignificant life. If you fear insignificance, you will worship your career. You'll worship your accomplishments. You may even worship your ministry feats if you're in the ministry. And typically, our negative emotions can always be traced back to what we worship. If you're an angry person, all right, you're a bitter person, there's no one else the problem but you. Your problem is not outside of you. Your problem is inside of you, all right? And God will bring people and circumstances into your life to expose your idols. Well, in this particular case, Pilate worshipped himself. He worshipped his career, his ambition, his position. And so he feared those who could get in the way of it. That's why we compromise. And he delivered Jesus over. I can't help but catch the irony of this as well. Because throughout the Psalms, you will see the righteous who neither desire nor deserve to be delivered over. Okay? You can see it in Psalm uh, 27, for instance, in Psalm 72. The, the righteous person neither desires or deserves to be delivered over to the wicked. And then you also see throughout the Old Testament that it's God who delivers the wicked over. All right? So the righteous do not deserve to be delivered over. The wicked deserve and are delivered over by God. But in this particular instance, you see the reversal of things. In the Christ event, these two realities are reversed. The righteous one is given over. And the guilty one is released. It's utterly remarkable and scandalous. That's what Barabbas represents. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in a book on biblical doctrine, he uses the Barabbas account to picture the substitutionary nature of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he pictures Barabbas sitting in his prison cell. Okay? He's sitting in his prison cell on that morning, likely April the 3rd, 33 A.D. Alright? And 9 a.m. is the time for the crucifixion. Barabbas is sitting in his cell, and, he, and he's looking at his hands, and he's envisioning the, in just a couple of hours, in just a few minutes, these hands are going to be pierced. 
And then he is shuddering at the sound of any kind of hammering going on outside his cell. Thinking about, that's what's going to happen to me. That's going to be my experience. And suddenly he hears outside the cell the cry of the crowd. Crucify him! Crucify him! And he thinks he hears his name. Okay? All of a sudden, the jailer comes to the cell and he opens it up and Barabbas thinks, now's my time. I'm about to be put to death. I'm about to be crucified. And then the jailer looks at him and says, you are free. Say what? The crowd has chosen Jesus of Nazareth instead of you. Jesus of Nazareth is going to die in your place. And then Barabbas, stunned, shocked, walks out of his cell. And he follows the throngs of people to Calvary. And there at 9 a.m. he sees Jesus of Nazareth being crucified on a Roman cross. He hears the sound of the hammer. And he knows that hammer, those nails, were meant for him. He sees the cross being lifted into place. And he knows he should have been the one who was there. And Barabbas must have been saying, that man took my place. I'm the one that should be up on that cross. I'm the one that should have died. I am the condemned criminal. That man did nothing wrong. He's dying in my place. You know, we don't know if Barabbas was ever saved spiritually. The text doesn't tell us. He was saved physically here. Okay? But it's certainly an intentional, spirit-wrought picture. Okay? God is provident in what He does. Alright? But one thing we do know. Barabbas was the first man in history to be able to say of Jesus, in my place, condemned, He stood, sealed my pardon, with His blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! And again, we don't know if Barabbas was ever saved. But envision that he was. For the rest of his life, if someone would have asked him, Who are you? Maybe he would have answered, I am the Son of the Father. I am Barabbas. My name is the Son of the Father. And I am the Son whom the eternal Son of God, okay, took my place. He bore my judgment. He paid my sin's penalty to set me free to live as a son. You know, that's what the Lord's Supper signals. Divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. You see, Jesus was delivered over to their will. That's what it says. He was delivered over to their will. But you should not lose sight of the fact that we read in Isaiah this morning, it was also the will of God to pierce Him. 
Okay? These people committed evil in piercing the Son of God. God the Father was able to take their wickedness and bring about glory and redemption through the crucified Messiah. And that's why we worship at the Lord's table. That's why we never get past the gospel. When we pray, we should pray the gospel. When we sing, we should sing the gospel. When we're in conversation with one another, instead of grumbling, instead of slandering, we should talk about the gospel. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about.